Strangely Literal. And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Black Crow. I found my home in the stories of my ancestors. Keep searching, or give up. Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods Season 2, Episode 3, Munin. What did you think, Alan? Uh, I really enjoyed this episode, and I felt like the writing was much better than last week. Uh, I complained a lot about that last time, um, but uh, I love all the pairs of characters that we get in this episode. You've got, like, Shadow and Sam, Wednesday and Laura, uh, Sweeney and his bad luck. Um <laughs> I think that uh, Celine and the Jin needed more, though. Like, I wish there was more for them to do or addressing any of their, like, emotional situation. But other than that, like, I thought it was great. What did you think? Yeah, I think the season is starting to get into a really nice groove. Um, there are a lot of fun moments, as there always are. Um, but I think now the show's also starting to build some momentum, and I hope that it can sustain that and eventually pay it off. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk about this week's creators. This episode was written by Heather Belson, who was also written for Black Sails and The Walking Dead. It was directed by Deborah Chow, who has also directed episodes of Jessica Jones and Better Call Saul. So lots of women working behind the camera this week, uh, which is really awesome. Mm, Yeah. Um, And I also want to highlight two new uh, actors in front of the camera who are women of color um, that got added to the cast this week. The first is Kawinahiri Devery Jacobs as Sam Black Crow. And apologies if I didn't get the pronunciation on that exactly correct. She's a Canadian First Nations actor who's from the Kanienke Haka Mohawk tribe. Um, and then the other new actor is Kayun Kim as New Media, and she is a South Korean actor. Let's recap what happened this week. Mad Sweeney collects Laura's broken body and puts her in a resurrected Betty's trunk. Mr. Wednesday drives them to Cairo, where Ibis repairs Laura. She decides to join Wednesday in an attack on Argus, and Matt Sweeney leaves for New Orleans in disgust. Mr. World resurrects new media and sends her along with a very annoyed technical boy to get better assistance from Argus. Shadow digs himself out of the train wreckage and recovers with some subliminal guidance from Munin, Odin's raven, and then is adopted by Sam Blackrow on her journey through Illinois. Mr. Wednesday convinces Laura to kill Argus, which both recharges her lucky coin and stops new media from getting an upgrade. Sam drops Shadow off in Cairo, where Mr. Wednesday is waiting for him with a drink and a new deal. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Every time. Like last time we we kind of ended talking about like the whole slip near thing and the way that 
the train like crashed into the car and like, what is that going to mean? Is there going to be an eight legged horse now? And it like ends up this whole episode is kind of about sacrifice, but no horse. Right. Um, yeah. But there is more horse name during the resurrection, just like there was during the death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, like it, it got me thinking about like sacrifice in this show, in this season, um, in this episode. And I feel like that's what this whole episode is about. You've got this whole thing with uh, Wednesday and Laura going into this Argus place that is kind of like what we talked about in the first episode, this conspiracy theory hub, you know, that is kind of created from people believing that there's a surveillance state and that the government is behind it. So like there is a surveillance state and the government is like hooked up to it. Um, Mm -hmm. with this God in the center of it and the way that they kind of covertly move through this space to sneak up on Argus is this series of like sacrificial analogies that they're kind of moving through. Right. So they're hitting this drum really hard in this episode. And I thought it was interesting that like Wednesday keeps calling Laura by her maiden name he wants her to like sacrifice her kind of persona of being attached to shadow to become someone else. Well, he's definitely trying to separate her from shadow as much as he can. Yeah. Trying to change her identity in order to change the way that she sees herself. And I think identity is like what I'm really trying to talk about. Like you just kind of clicked it into place for me because like the sacrifices that the gods want from humans is is kind of like a traumatic experience for the human beings. And that trauma like kind of changes us. And that's really what Wednesday is saying. Like you're not the same woman that you were when, you know, he married you. And Ibis tells her that too, when he chews on a piece of her flesh, he's like, you know, you didn't believe in anything when I saw you the first time. And now there's something like you're different now. And Mm -hmm. those changes that work in us, you know, give us a new identity. And the the sacrifice seems to give in this world that a special kind of energy that like can literally, you know, by the end of this episode, Laura is like recharged and looks different. She's like literally different. Yeah, I think you're right, though. And I think one of the keys to that, right, is that... um like most of the really good quotes from this episode are all on this theme of sacrifice mm-hmm. um, and like gifts. Like at one point, Shadow says that gods only give gifts when they get something in return. Uh, when he's talking to Sam, when Ibis is telling the story about Argus, he talks about gods falling victim to their thirst for worship um which is of course related to sacrifice so yeah i think you're you're definitely right that 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 is like the big theme that is tying the different parts of this episode together when uh laura and wednesday are going through argus it's like a series of sacrifices right that they have to make right the thing that they get in return for the sacrifice is stealth um, until she can sneak up on him and, and take him out. 
But I think this idea is important because there are not necessarily phenomenon in this world of American gods to observe and then kind of like take data from that and build a framework out of to understand what's going on, but rather that like your beliefs themselves and in this case, your actions in terms of a sacrifice and, and what you want out of that can themselves manifest phenomenon. Um, and so part of what I think Mr. Wednesday is doing here with Laura is trying to take someone who believes in shadow out of shadows life. Oh, cause the act of Laura believing in shadow and like worshiping him in some way, like actually gives him power and can make him be more independent maybe, or like more of a wild card than Wednesday wants him to be. Right. Like if you think about, so like shadow's mom told him like, you have a light, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like Laura sees a light in him. Um, also in season one, when they went to Vulcan Wednesday told him like, can you see, uh, Laura and where she's at and he kind of closed his eyes and this light like appears behind his eyes and he's able to remotely see through her eyes. Uh, Mm -hmm. He makes the snow appear when Mr. Wednesday says he can do it. So like Wednesday believes in shadow. That's something that he talks about in this episode. He's like, am I the only one who believes in shadow that he can do it? He believes in shadow, but that means that his belief kind of, helps to manifest the phenomenon out of shadow that he wants. Like for example, snow, if somebody else believes in him, then they could make something happen that he doesn't want. And so he wants to block that from happening. He wants Laura to become this kind of uh, like God vampire where she's going to go like assassinate gods to recharge her coin or something, make her, more self-interested basically she sacrifices argus to herself and not i see to protect and Shadow. that's what that's the power that recharges her coin yeah i think so but really all she's doing is believing that this will work and therefore it works i see the reason why she gets the recharge is because wednesday believed it and laura kind of believed it enough to make it work and now that she does for sure believe it then it will work even better in the future right so if she goes to new orleans where mad sweeney is waiting and mad sweeney's like make a deal with this you know whoever god and then laura goes the god of christian rock (laughs) i can't wait to see who this is um yeah and it'll be like i don't need to make a deal i'm just gonna stab him and you know That does two things for Wednesday. It gets Laura out of his hair, but it also gets some more gods off the board. Uh, But couldn't that really backfire, right? Because most of the old gods are on his side. So Laura could just go rogue and just start murdering all of his potential soldiers, too. Like, she knows way more of the old gods than she does the new gods just because of who she's been hanging around with. Mm. It seems like a very risky strategy to me Mm -hmm. from that perspective. Because he does kind of aim her in this episode at like a target that he wants to uh, take out, right? So yeah, you got to point that. 
But yeah, like if he wants her to keep taking out new gods instead of just going after the old gods that she knows, she's going to take quite a bit of like active management. I think your idea about Wednesday's belief in shadow and other people's belief in shadow empowering him and his belief to then ultimately have more power to change the world is really interesting because it does complicate that kind of simple and straightforward Tinkerbell hypothesis where it's literally just human belief powers gods and it's like one directional. Um, So like either it's possible for humans to kind of transcend their humanness Mm -hmm. and become somewhat godlike or the god's belief can actually impact humans in kind of the same way. Um, And like, I guess those aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're both interesting extensions of what we've gotten so far. Yeah. So it could be a real person like Bilquis, um, who then becomes godlike because of how famous and important and powerful and all the associations that go along with it, they kind of transcend their humanity in the same way that like Lucy Ricardo became like a persona. And, and I think for that to happen, there has to be, it seems like a requirement of the world building that we're really like getting pounded on in this particular episode, that there be sacrifice associated with that. It's important. And I mean, that goes all the way back to the first episode, right? It's important that like blood be spilled, um, that somebody lose something. Because otherwise power would be free right. and, and the economy just like wouldn't work. Exactly. Yeah. It's <clears throat> yeah. It's that trauma that that really like takes a toll on people and like causes something to happen in the world. It's a little bit mysterious, but I think it's an important like data point in how the world building works, which is always like what I'm interested in. I want to, I'm like, yes, yes, people have emotions and feelings, but how does the world work? Like, that's what I want to know about in a story. And just real quick, I wanted to mention with, as in terms of uh, Iktomi here, that he asks them for a sacrifice when they, when they go down to like his weed operation or whatever he's got going there in the Dakotas. He says, you brought me a sacrifice when he sees Salim and the djinn is like, no, that's mine. And then uh, they pick up the spear, presumably. But he says that he, he gives them an instrument of death in a guitar case. And I'm like, guys, that's a trickster open up the guitar case like who knows what's in there like do you think the spear is in there like i was like yelling at my tv i was like come on um and then he tells him like odin needs to like when the time comes votan must pay homage and i'm like this is a bad idea what are you doing like do you think the spear is in there do you have any thoughts on that I just assumed that the spear was in there. I did like the the whole like instrument of death visual pun. Mm-hmm. I liked the way the that the like seedling went along with it, right? Because there's like an interesting duality there, right? It's like a an instrument of death, but then it has to come with a symbol of new life at the same time. Oh, um, that's interesting. So yeah, I don't really know where it's going, but I thought that was cool okay that makes me think of two things and then we'll 
we'll kind of move on from all this sacrifice talk. So first off, like I had to do some reading about Iktomi because I'm not very familiar with um, First Nations religions. I'm really bad with names. I kind of have a little bit of a reading disability. Um, And so like a lot of these stories are similar to each other, the way that like Greek and Roman stories are, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, who's the mother of who? Like, it just gets confusing. But one of the interesting things that came up was exactly what you just said. Iktomi is from the Lakota people. The Lakota in particular believe in this idea of balance. It's balanced the way that you just said, like, I'm going to give you a weapon of destruction and here's a seedling to go with it Mm -hmm. because that's how the world works. And so it's interesting that you noticed that and that the show took the time to do that because the scene doesn't happen in the book. So that means like it gives me confidence that somebody's really paying attention and being thoughtful about this stuff. But Iktomi is uh, basically like they say in the show, he's like a trickster god and Basically, like the other guy who's there, that like creepy dude with the really deep voice, he is a, a evil spirit, a demon kind of called Ganash Giwan. And he is like is an imitator. So you think of like there's the smart kid in the class and then there's the other kid in the class who makes fun of the smart kid by imitating him. And it'd be like, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, yeah, the answer two plus two is four, and the, the answer is two plus two plus four. That is like what Ganashki is, and he imitates. And and Iktomi's the smart kid. It, he was. He, he was unbalanced though, and this is why it's so important in Lakota mythology that that he was really really good, and Ganashki was bad. And the two mingled together, like to the point where you could not tell if you were getting good advice or bad advice. It was was it good wisdom or is it just sound like wisdom, but it's actually a really bad idea. So one last thing on Iktomi. So a couple episodes ago, we we were talking about how Mr. Anansi is kind of edgier in the show than he is in the book and how I think that that's an improvement. Same goes for Iktomi. In the book, he is just kind of a chill dude drinking light beer on his uh, porch. And he complains a lot about white people, but there's no kind of sense of danger about him. And Mm -hmm. I really like what they did with him in the show here. He just feels dangerous and weird and dark. I just thought it was great. And then uh, at the end here, you know, to get back onto the sacrifice train, Uh, which I guess crashed at the beginning of the episode. So that's a bad metaphor. Um, (laughs) We, at the very end here, it seemed to me like um, Shadow comes like all battered and bruised, you know, to the doorstep of Jekyll and Ibis. And Mr. World is waiting for him and he's kind of drinking this thing. And I was like, oh, that's um, like in the episode from Vulcan. This is like uh, some Soma. And then he gave it to Shadow and I'm like, whoa, like that really fits in with this whole idea of like human worship giving shadow power. Like he's, it seemed like he was like powering shadow up, I guess maybe to heal him or something. Like he's, he said, have a drink of this and we'll see how you feel in the morning. Um, But I don't know if you remember when we talked about Soma last season. So I definitely remember talking about Soma last season uh, in the episode with Vulcan 
And when I saw this scene at the end, I definitely wondered if it was Soma. Um, But it didn't really make sense that Shadow was drinking it, although I guess maybe it makes more sense now after a conversation. Um, But I was curious, is there anything in the text besides the fact that it's kind of like a mysterious brown bottle that Wednesday's drinking from? Like, is there any direct evidence that it's Soma, or are we just guessing at this point? Yeah, it's a guess. I mean, in that episode, he says Soma uh, in the Vulcan one. Right. Yeah, and they, like, go out of their way to talk about bringing it as a gift for Vulcan. Right. Yeah. And in the book, they talk about what it is and how it works and, like, you know, with the world building and everything. So like, I'm just basically transferring that knowledge into this show as if, you know, it's correct. But probably Soma, like 85% Soma. I think so. Like, especially with the weird look that Shadow gives the bottle, like it doesn't seem like it's just beer or something. <laughs> He's like, yeah, what? I hate IPAs. <laughs> but yeah, I saw a lot of sacrifice, a lot of like how the world building mechanics are affected by it. And that's, really what I noticed in this episode. What what called out to you this time? So I wanted to talk about new media, both because I thought it was some of the most interesting parts of this episode, and also because it is something that is like clearly diverging from the book at this point. Mm. And so I really like how I think the show is basically trying to kind of make lemonade out of lemons at this point, right? Because... Um, Jillian Anderson was amazing as media, but because of all the behind the scenes drama, she ended up leaving um, because she was kind of aligned with the first uh, set of showrunners, uh, Fuller and Green. Um, And so basically, instead of just recasting her, they kind of like wrote in a death and rebirth and are like really making a big deal out of new media as a distinct character. And I think like trying to say some interesting things about how a new media is functioning in 2019 that obviously were like not relevant in 1999 when the book was originally published. I loved the like Snapchat style filters, um, the like use of hashtags. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I like the way that she's kind of set up opposed to Technical Boy um, because in a way they should be natural allies, right? Like they're both really trendy and, you know, based in technology, but they do contrast in like really important ways, right? Because Technical Boy is, um, you know, he's kind of like that, that more traditional side of like internet culture that just is like, sarcastic doesn't give a fuck doesn't want you to like it you know he's just like brash and and you know like super trendy but in a way that like doesn't really give a shit about making you happy or pleasing you um right whereas like new media definitely wants to be pleasing it wants to be seductive it wants to be liked in a way that technical boy doesn't care about being liked She's, like, all about the dopamine hits that you get Mm. from social media in a way that Technical Boy doesn't really care about. When she touches Argus, like, his reaction, I feel like, is maybe a bit of uh, commentary on how addictive 
new media and like social media is and how it really is all about like the dopamine hits that that engagement like that gives you that's so smart i love that i hadn't thought of that at Um, all that's great yeah and i just i loved a technical boy's response of like how the fuck is this an upgrade Um, that made me think that she is like the dawn from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, I got a kid sister. Like, what? No. Yeah. Yeah. And and when they're talking, you know, she says, we're basically redundant. And he's like, no, we're different enough. He's like, I am I am like totally not about the Instagram scene. Like, you know, <laughs> right. new media is fire Festival and Technical Boy is like, everybody laughing about it and like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fuck those influencers you know yep um but anyway yeah i uh hashtag loved it and uh <laughs> according to my roommate uh he was just like she's so annoying it's beautiful and perfect and i thought that was like a perfect description of her i felt the same way like i love that he tries to talk to her the same way that he talked to shadow like in the first episode i'm the boss that's the way he talks to argus like i fucking run you you work for me you don't work for mr world and like he is so bad at that like he is so terrible at talking to people and it's great i love that he has learned nothing from all of this yeah like, he is still awful um I immediately thought of like, okay, so she's like in a schoolgirl outfit, knee high socks, pigtails. She's Asian. Like this is all, I was like, "Mm." this reminds me of what Anya said in season one about how like the male gods are all violence like Chernobog and the female gods are sex like Bilquis. And I was like, I wonder what you think about that. Do you, do you see her in that paradigm? No, I definitely do. And I definitely, I mean, I like that there's an Asian actress getting work and more representation on the cast. Me too. But I also think her being Asian speaks to a kind of fetishization. There definitely is a certain cachet to being not white these days, and particularly not white in ways that are fetishizable and digestible and i'm not saying that that makes up in any way for all of the downsides of being not white like white supremacy and and white privilege are still like hugely powerful forces but um there's also like ways that that whiteness kind of like uses and commodifies non-whiteness to make money yeah Um, exactly and like particularly with asian women um and so like i think in a way, her casting is kind of alluding to that. I think that Kayun Kim does like show range in this episode and she seems talented and I'm excited to see what else she does. So I don't want to like reduce her to a cliche when I when I bring that up. It was just like, oh, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I also like when I was watching it for the first time, me and my wife were cuddled up on the couch watching this on my computer. And at the point where it got to that point, I was like, oh, man. I'm going to have to talk about tentacle porn on my podcast. Why <laughs> Why do I have to do that? Did she laugh? Yeah. And then she was like, wait, you know about tentacle porn? And I was like, listen. Um, yeah. So this is like a thing, right? Like, that's immediately what I thought of. Like, this is like a trope. This goes actually way back to images of like women having sex with like an octopus or something like that 
um, in Japanese culture and carries through to today in like hentai culture. But isn't a lot of that have to do with like different types of censorship? Exactly. Like you don't have to censor tentacles the way you have to censor penises. Right. So it's like you get more penetration without having to be censored that's exactly what it is so i thought of that immediately and i'm like why is the show doing this um i don't know if i have a good answer i don't even know if it was conscious if or if they were like it just happened but it's kind of problematic because it objectifies women it like you know it's like bestiality and stuff so i don't think they like set out to make an illusion to tentacle porn specifically Mm. but i think they were trying to make a comment about like new media selling sex and given Argus, I think they went in a visual direction that evoked that. And I don't think they were ignorant about it evoking that. Honestly, it didn't really bother me because it wasn't male gazy. Yeah. If that makes any sense, right? No, it like, does. Like, there is tentacle porn, but she is fully clothed, and, like, all of the sensuality is coming through her face. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it's weird and twisted in a way that is, like, interesting and not necessarily... It's, like, commentary on all of these things without just playing into them unquestioningly. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does. It it didn't really feel sexy. It did feel like weird because you have those moments of like, and I love these moments of Argus, like eyeballs opening all over his bald head. And then yeah. like the emojis are like effervescing off of her body. <laughs> and you get like a real sense of these two like non-human alien creatures are like interfacing in some way. And you're like, whoa, like that's cool and edgy in a way that I think does service to this show. Yeah. I just felt like I had to kind of draw out and be like, Hey, just so y'all know, that's like tentacle porn is a thing. Yeah. No, I definitely had the same thought while I was watching it. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about the scene is that it's cool how Laura's interest and the technical boys interests became aligned for a moment, even though we don't necessarily think of them as allies. Mm, yeah. And I also thought it was interesting that the new gods still don't know, or at least as of the beginning of this episode, didn't know who Laura was. Oh. Um, she was like a big blind spot for them. They said, you know, when they were tracking the car, they said, um, we last saw Wednesday doing going down blah 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 road with an unidentified female and so given how much surveillance they have on them and how well they're tracking Wednesday in shadow I thought it was interesting that Laura wasn't on their radar yet and like I wonder if that's going to change now that technical boy has seen her maybe they will even try to recruit her or something um that would Mm -hmm. be crazy yeah that's good yeah and it was like a little confusing to me my first time through the episode just like what everyone's motivations were yeah with regard to argus so maybe it makes sense for yeah for both of us to just kind of talk about that because if we didn't get it then probably other people also had trouble getting it no i definitely Um, didn't get it until the second time when i was really thinking about like the theme of sacrifice and stuff and i was like oh okay i get it i get it okay so basically 
Argus is kind of playing both sides, but he's mostly helping the new gods. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Wednesday wants to kill Argus, because right now Argus is more of a benefit for the new gods than for the old gods, even though he technically is an old god. So they want him out of the picture. Right. Uh, In the same way with Vulcan, right? Right, exactly. Um, So so that's fairly straightforward. Um, What was confusing to me was like, why exactly New Media Technical Boy were there and why Technical Boy wanted Laura to kill Argus, right? Because he kind of enabled it. Mm-hmm. Like, he saw it happening and just let it happen. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like Wednesday's Raven took down one of the drones and and they, like, because the infrastructure wasn't quite up to snuff, they, like, didn't get all the information that they wanted, and so Mr. World was basically, like, mad at Technical Boy for not having uh, the surveillance equipment be perfectly functioning and completely up to speed. And so, and then Technical Boy basically blamed the technology not working on Argus. So Mr. World was like, okay, go talk to Argus and, like, make sure this gets upgraded so we can use it more. And then he gets new media foisted on him as a companion. So he's there trying to get Argus to upgrade the technology. So he doesn't initially want Argus dead, but as the longer they're there, he realizes that new media is going to form this alliance with Argus and become more powerful than him. So he basically lets Laura kill Argus in order to maintain his edge over new media. And like keep her handicapped. Is that was that your read on it? Yeah, I think so. Because it feels like on the new gods side that the way things are run is like there's not like loyalty. You're like earning your place, right? And you could get taken out at any moment by a new person on the field. And so mm-hmm. you know, you gotta remember that media like knocked his teeth out last season, right? And Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. So she was more powerful than him and now he has kind of moved up to be the second in command and now new media is here and she's like, Hey, you know, hashtag replace you and it's like no no no. <laughs> I mean it definitely seemed a bit short sighted on Technical Boy's part to let Argus get taken out given that he was benefiting the new god side so much so it'll be interesting to see what the fallout from that is if he has to come up with some sort of lie to tell Mr. Worlds or like yeah how it's gonna affect things later on totally I love all the politics on the new god side and all the like machinations Mm -hmm. and backstabbing and stuff that's good and so then the other main thing I wanted to talk about was um, the appearance of Sam Black Crow my first reaction was that I thought that just like purely from a, a structural perspective that she doesn't work showing up later in the plot in the TV show as much as she works coming up earlier in the plot in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to think about like what role she's actually playing here. One of the thoughts that I had was that Shadow has basically just been interacting with gods and like mystically dead undead people uh for most of the story so far and so i think this is the first example of shadow like really connecting with another human that we've seen in a while Mm -hmm. and so that uh i guess since audrey 
Uh, hashtag my fave. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I think that's interesting. Like, she's kind of pulling him maybe towards another reality uh, away from Wednesday a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's like the actual message that she gives him at the end, which is basically about connecting with your ancestors. Yeah, I guess we haven't seen a lot of Shadow connecting with his ancestors yet. And so maybe that will become more important as the show goes on. I don't know. And I know, like, you've read the full book more recently than I have, and you actually remember what happened. So maybe, <laughs> uh, like, without being too spoilery, um, give me your perspective on that. Well, I so first off, I think you're right. Like, if you compare this to the book, in the book, uh, at this point, three days have passed since the beginning of the story for Shadow. Like, essentially, he goes to the house on the rock. He ends up on the train Laura gets him out and then he wanders and, and runs into Sam. And so he has seen weird shit, but is not like as hip deep into it as he is right now in the show. This feels very mundane in a way that is charming to me because I love Sam. She's probably my favorite character from the book, but feels out of step with where the show is at now in tone. Yeah. She is important in the book. And I think one of the really important things is kind of what you're actually referencing here in the book is that she is kind of like a comparison uh, to reflect shadow. She is also a loner. She is also kind of isolated both from her family and the world at large, but she handles it in a very different way. She has a kind of confidence and verve to her that shadow doesn't have, but she's just as smart She's just as capable. It's just that she believes in herself and is very self-motivated and in ways that Shadow is kind of too sensitive and closed off to emulate. And she is a, a central part of the plot throughout the rest of the story. So this is really just her introduction. I see. Okay. That's awesome because I was... Yeah, like disappointed thinking that this would be the last time that we would see her. So I'm glad to know that that's not the case. Yeah, and I think they got a really great actress to play the part. I think she like really nails it. I love that she's actually native and like all of that mm -hmm. stuff. Like it's great. And she has like the perfect look uh, here in the show. I don't think she says this in the book. I can't remember. But uh, she has this whole thing about I have two spirits, a man and a woman. Yeah, so that actually is something that I wanted to talk about a little bit because the TV show is like trying to get right. And then they kind of like succeed on one front and fail on the other. Um, so they talk about what it means to be two spirit and have um, both like masculine and feminine spirits in one body, which is like a, a traditional Native American belief and identity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that I think has gotten some recent exposure in the wider culture um, both in good ways and bad because the ways that I first heard about it were basically in the form of white LGBT people trying to co-opt it as a oh. identity and then being told by um, like First Nations Native Americans indigenous people like like no like hands off uh, <laughs> if you're if you're not native you don't get to be two spirit like you can identify however you want but like this isn't 
you don't understand the cultural context and like you don't have any claim to this identity. And so that I thought showed like a lot of, you know, awareness and and just like cultural currency from the writer's room. Um, But then they also had Sam say that she was full blood Cherokee. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like... From my admittedly uh, not fully complete Twitter education um, from, like, following Native activists on this, like, I'm pretty sure that Native Americans don't really do blood quantum anymore. And, like, that's part of the whole hubbub about Elizabeth Warren and how she, you know, was, like, claiming Native ancestry um, in, like, a really tone-deaf way. Yeah, that the way that that tribal entities determine membership does not have to do with genetics or blood quantum. Um, so that kind of like grated on my ears a little bit. Cause I was like, uh, if Sam black Crow is as woke as she seems, I don't think that that's how she would <laughs> phrase that. In the book, Sam black Crow is queer. So this kind of signals that I feel like to the audience, uh, to the non-book audience. Mm-hmm. And also she has like kind of a, a butch look to her sort of soft butch. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, the way that they had her entire costume, her tattoos, you know, she's got the bare arms and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, she looks tough. She's driving this truck. Um, now in the book, um, Shadow is driving and she is the one who comes to him for a ride. What do you think about that? That like, once again, like we've cast Shadow in the passive role here, right? And and this other character is active. Really? Where does he get his car? Okay, so in the book, this where he goes into the shop here is like Mm -hmm. straight out of the book. And then the lady behind the counter says, oh, I have my brother-in-law sells cars and he says, oh, I've, he's got all this money from the bank job. He's got ready cash. Oh, that's right. I see. And then he okay. buys a car and uh, goes along his way and picks up Sam, who's hitching on the road. I see. Which honestly makes more sense that he would pick up her than she would pick up him just from like a safety perspective. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. This kind of doesn't make uh, sense here. No, I do like Sam as the driver the fact that she's willing to take that risk um, and pick him up, I think, says something about her. And the fact that we're, like, giving her a bit more agency and control over her life, I think. Um, I like the way that sets her up. Yeah. I, I love the question he asked her. Is, Are you human? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> she's like, what? Uh, yeah. It's perfectly awkward. Uh, I I felt bummed out that um, she didn't say my favorite line from this part when they part ways uh, in the book. She says, you're fucked up, mister, but you're cool. Um, I really <laughs> wanted her to say that, but she didn't say it. I feel like the mister would have been out of character at this point. But yeah, she definitely, I think that line could have been worked in somehow. Yeah, it would have been good. If anybody wants to, like, who has read the book and wants to think more about, like, um, Sam Blackrow and stuff like that. Um, there's a really good article written on theartifice.com about um, Neil Gaiman and gender myths and gender roles in the novel. And there's like 
extensive stuff about Sam and her queerness, how it got it right, how it got it wrong. It's a really interesting read, and I'll put that in the show notes so people can check that out. Uh, it does have spoilers in it, but it's great. And I can also um, give a list of some of the Native politics people who I follow on Twitter. Um, so if people are interested in hearing more about that and following people who are much more qualified to talk about it than I am, uh, <laughs> you can look in the show notes for those people there. Perfect. I wanted to talk about the fetch quest that Jin and Salim go on in this episode to the Corn Palace. So in the first episode, they said they were going to the Corn Palace. We had just been to the House on the Rock, and I know the Corn Palace is like a uh, roadside attraction that I have been to. You know, I was wondering about that because when we got to the Porn Palace in the episode, I was like pretty disappointed. I was like, oh, no, I thought this was going to be some like weird corn maze exhibit. I was looking forward to that. You were not half as disappointed as I was because like... (laughs) My memories of the Corn Palace are very strong. I was a small child and it's like one of the happiest like trips of of my entire childhood. Uh, My parents took me to Mount Rushmore and we went camping every night along the way on this road trip. And we stopped at a whole bunch of roadside attractions, including the Corn Palace. I in our planning doc here, I threw in some links to what this place looks like. It's very cool. Like. The outside of it every year, they decorate it with actual like corn cobs that are arranged to become murals. And like the entire thing is um, like fiber art, you know, made out of like corn stalks and leaves. And it's amazing. It's a really cool place in in the Dakotas. And I don't know what happened, like if they weren't allowed to go there or what or they ran out of money yeah but it's so cool to look at and i was like oh is this gonna get the house in the rock treatment but no they were they were like we already said the we already filmed scenes with the word corn palace and now we can't go to corn palace so we have to save it somehow it's terrible like i was so disappointed but yeah I'll, i'll throw some links in the show notes for what this place looks like but so do you want me to look at it? Yeah. What do you think? Like looking at this place compared okay. to what we got. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. 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 Uh, in the words of the immortal Jenny Onions, that is <laughs> special. And they redo that outside every year. Every year. It's something different. It's very Russian looking yes. for. <laughs> it is. For something made out of corn in South Dakota. <laughs> Now, the building itself is not made out of corn. It's a brick building. They just cover it well, yeah. in, in this corn stuff. Uh, so that disappointed me right off the bat. And then there was just more disappointment to follow. I just feel like Salim and the Jin are like these special characters to me. I care about them a lot in the show. And we have not had like any unpacking of the emotional like reality of of... Like Salim has found the djinn. Like, what does the djinn think about that? What What is their relationship now? All we get is them picking this thing up and then they leave. And I mean, all of that is well done, but it feels very mechanical. Like there's, if you compare this to like what's going on with Wednesday and Laura, like it's, it's not good, right? Well, it's, it just, it has no soul. Yeah. Right? Like Salim is just following him 
in the hopes of of something, but the Jin is like really holding him at arm's distance. And when you think about last season, this is the third episode, and the third episode was when we met them for the first time, and they had a consummate amount of screen time in that episode, but look at how much, how big of an impact that had compared to this. And I'm like, you could use these characters, use these actors to do something bigger than this. Like it was a disappointment just all around. Yeah. I mean, I guess I felt like there was so much going on in this episode anyway, that like, I didn't really need more from them. Although you're right. Like there's not much to the storyline, but like, I don't know, maybe that will end up being part of what happens to them, right? Like, Salim at some point is like, hey, stop jerking me around. Like, let's do this or not. Yeah. I just want something. I want a conversation between them. Like, I feel like that hasn't happened. Okay, but speaking of side stories that were great, uh, Mad Sweeney disaster porn (laughs) is something that I did not know that I needed in my life until we started watching the show. It's just so good. This is like uh, also in episode three of last season, he he starts to make his journey and realize that he's missing his coin because everything keeps going wrong for him. And it's awesome to see it happen again. Oh, my God. The end of the whole thing with him in the bus is the funniest yeah. thing that's ever happened on the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Making fun of Christian Rock is almost too easy, but <laughs> I still loved it regardless. I love the costume choices on that bus. It's all just perfect. It's so perfect. You know, I complained last time about Mad Sweeney and Laura, and I tried to keep in mind what you said uh, about like where they're at in their friendship. And I think you're spot on, like with the two of them talking in the uh while ibis is working on her mm-hmm. and he is trying to provoke her and then she flicks him across the room and he smiles and he's like there she is and i was like oh. yeah yep anya knows exactly what she's talking about yep <laughs> so i really liked that all of sweeney is great i did want to say like i probably should have said this last time when uh shadow was getting tortured that like it just when when he woke up in the train wreckage too. It it just reminded me of this that, like on TV, we just have this thing about like black men and really black women, just black bodies enduring a lot of pain and not having much trauma from that experience. Um, mm. It was kind of nice to see in this episode that Shadow limps the whole time and that we're reminded of that pain. It made me think of like in the first season in the second episode after he's been hung, he goes to a doctor and like gets staples put in his side. Um, yeah. And we never really see anything come out of that. And just shadow just gets beat to hell all the time. And there's not a lot of fallout from that. And I'm like, that's not good. That's not a way that we want to think about black bodies. And so I liked that he was beat up but then at the end of the episode Wednesday is like drink this magic potion and you'll be all better in the morning and I'm kind of like that's not good (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) I get it but at the same time like I don't know that the show is really thinking about what it's perpetuating and um I think it's worth thinking about and on a similar line I thought the reference to broken window theory was interesting 
uh, coming from Mr. Worlds, mm-hmm. um, right? Because the broken window theory was like basically an excuse to over police uh, minority neighborhoods with the idea that like you have to criminalize minor things um, and including like poverty. Right. Uh, and and then in order to um, deal with like larger, more important crimes. Uh, and so it basically just like, yeah, really invites over policing of communities that that really don't need that. And so I guess like the fact that it's coming out of the mouth of a clear villain makes it better. I thought it was worth just kind of like discussing that a little bit and, and like how... Uh, it's not really a a good thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, I noticed that too. I'll put a article in the show notes from Frontline about like if our audience doesn't know what broken window theory is or like why it was not really effective. But yeah, it was kind of like a social paradigm that was supposed to improve neighborhoods, but all it really did was like lay the groundwork for gentrification to get like poor people and minorities out of neighborhoods so that white people could, you know, set up boutiques and Starbucks and stuff, Um, which is perfect for Mr. World to talk about. The show didn't really like do the work of like unpacking that, you know? Yeah. Um, The name of this episode is Munin or maybe it's Munin. Uh, I don't really know. I've only ever read it. I say Munin in the episode. Mr. Wednesday says, uh, Munin. Um, oh, really? Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. That's one of the better lines, too. This episode is really funny when he, he gets the report back from Munin and then he just waves the newspaper at him and says, fuck off. Um, oh, yeah. It's so good. Uh, but Munin is one of a pair of uh, ravens that he has who is uh, thought and the other one is memory, uh, who is Hugen or Huggen, I guess. Hugen sounds better, right? Not Huggin. You don't want your cool yeah, yeah. raven to don't be... Don't name your raven that. No. He's like a Care Bear then. That's not good. <laughs> um, yeah. So Munin is thought. And the idea of these in, in Norse mythology was that they would go out and kind of uh, do surveillance for Odin. And then they would report back. So it's exactly what's happening in the episode. In the book... This is like the raven shows up and actually starts talking to him. And yeah. it becomes like absurd and the tone of the book kind of shifts into it being funny. But the show chose not to do that. I think it was the right choice. What do you think about that? Did you, did you like that or did you miss it from the book? Yeah. I mean, I think talking animals, it would it's that's hard to pull off. Mm-hmm. Um in a show like this. So I liked that they basically, I mean, in the same way that the Raven, you like the Raven makes Raven noises and then Odin just understands what he's saying. Yeah, that works. Um, They basically did the same thing for shadow. Like as much as my favorite part of the book is uh, like shadow asking the Raven to say nevermore and the Raven saying, fuck you. (laughs) Um, Like I understand why they didn't think that would translate very well. I th- but I think we got instead the Christian rock band. So it like yeah. equaled out. So I think we're about wrapped up. Uh, Alan, what was your least favorite part? Uh, so in the beginning, I don't like that Betty, the Cadillac, comes right back uh, exactly how she was. 
because like on a world building scale, that just says to me that like, is death just going to be this revolving door that is meaningless for God characters? Like as long as we set up that we're doing a resurrection and there's no cost, that's not good. That's, that's bad. That's actively like I was raised on comic books. I know how bad that is. It's not good. (laughs) So what, what was bad for you? Well, speaking of Betty, I was a little annoyed at the train scene because no car, not even a Cadillac can really derail a train. (laughs) Um, Although I guess you can explain it away with like supernatural power, blah, blah, blah. Um, I really liked the scene with Ibis and the mirror storytelling mechanical device. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. But I thought the excuse that they used to get Argus to America was a little thin. Me too. Um, And especially thinking about um, the most recent episode of of Still Dead, the Angel podcast, where Lonnie Diane Rich was saying basically that, like, as a writer, you might be tempted to call attention to plot holes where, like, something doesn't quite make sense and, like lampshade it a little bit and just like don't do it it's not worth it like (laughs) it never makes it better it just makes it worse like how did argus get to america the fact that that they explain it away in like a really horrible way doesn't make it better than just wondering about how that happened so in the story that ibis is telling he says um the death of the all-seeing one angered the queen of goddesses In an act of vengeance, she channeled her will, and Argus was reborn in America as the god of surveillance. But as his believers waned, so did his sight. Only his memories remain intact. An alliance with the new gods seems imminent. But, like, (sighs) that just doesn't sit right. Uh -uh. And then the other just, like, small thing was that there's a lot of variance in the quality of the CGI on the show. Um, and it's been a while since we've had some like really bad CGI, but all the like floaty glowy stuff when shadow first gets to the, the funeral home at the end was that good. (laughs) I think those are fireflies, right? Um, Oh, I honestly did not even get that. (laughs) I thought they were like magical floating coins. Mm. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Yeah. I could see why you would hate that. So what was your favorite part? Oh, I mean, Mad Sweeney's bad luck. And we, we've talked it up, but it's so, it was just so good. Him lighting the boat on fire. And then he just looks around like, am I going <laughs> to jump off this boat? Like, what's going to happen to me when I do that? Like, definitely get eaten by an alligator. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. no way around it. Yeah, I hope he makes it to New Orleans because I want, I just want more of this. And then I want Laura and Sweeney to get back together and have more crazy shit happen how about you uh well first of all given the amount of time that you've spent in louisiana i'm shocked that you say new orleans it's because of the podcast i don't say nolans but okay. <laughs> i'm trying to have good elocution yeah so i think my favorite part was ibis in the funeral home and especially like him eating little bits of laura's flesh although i at the time i guess i thought he was eating the maggots but maybe he was just eating her He's just, like, so classy and unperturbable. (laughs) Um, Damore Barnes is amazing. He steals every scene that he's in, and he is such a delight to watch. And then I guess the other 
thing uh, that I wanted to bring up was I thought the music in this episode um, was really good. Um, I liked the like weird creepiness of the the Argus theme, um, and I thought the like techno music um, for New Media was really good That's as well. So good. Um, you know, the music hasn't necessarily been bad this season so far, but it hasn't been like quite as noticeably amazing as first season. Mm-hmm. Um, and we mentioned it as like uh, they brought in new composers as well for season two. So yeah, I thought the the composers were were like really stepping up their game this episode. So that's all we've got for this week. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at strangely literal. That's strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Come join us next week for season two, episode four, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And don't forget to tell all of your friends about us and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Because podcasters only give gifts when they get something in return. Though in the end, they all fall victim to their thirst for worship. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license